In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping over watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Well, welcome again. Tonight's message is entitled, I'll Be Home for Christmas, from that famous song. I thought I'd start by reading you just the opening lyrics to it, because I think it's just really so good. Here's how it goes. I'm dreaming tonight of a place I love even more than I usually do. I'll be home for Christmas. You can count on me. You know, I often think if I could sing, it would just be absolutely awesome. I could bust out in song right now, but that's never going to happen. I'll be home. What is home? Like, what actually really makes us feel like we're home? Christmas time, we talk a lot about giving presents. Is it the abundance of presents that make us feel like home, or is it the sense of presence, of really being present with somebody? You take two parents, parent A, who maybe just kind of pour presents on gifts on a child, but they don't give them much of their presence. And then you have parent B over here that maybe, maybe they don't pour many presents as far as gifts on the child, but boy, they sure do pour their life into them, and they're always present. Here's the question. Which child is going to feel more loved? Which child is going to feel more secure? Which child is going to feel more hopeful about life? Everybody, I think actually the Christmas story cuts to the very core of the human being and the need that we have. C.S. Lewis says this about theology. Theology, if it's anything, it is practical. So I would like you to think tonight in just a very few moments that we're going to be here, what is it exactly that Christmas is? What is being conveyed to us? What is it that is longing in our hearts? What is it that cuts to the core of our being? What is it that is so practical about what we would do and how we would react to somebody we love? And then how do we understand what God has done for us? 
This is really what Christmas is all about. Because when we have somebody in our life, right, that we love and they're experiencing a great sorrow, what is our natural reaction? When we have somebody in our life that is experiencing a great joy, what is our natural reaction? My kids who uh, read the scripture, you know, here tonight, uh, so many sports, they were involved with so many sports. And when something went great for them or they scored a winning goal or they, the winning basket or whatever, and it was awesome, what was my reaction? Because I loved them. I wanted to run out and hug them and, and jump up and down and rejoice with them. That's natural. That's the way human beings are. That's who we are as people. And so when God saw us, in our joys and in our sorrows, isn't it so natural? Isn't it just the practical thing that God would come down and be with us? Well, that's Christmas. Christmas is when love shows up, shows up in our lives. I mentioned a few weeks ago when I started this whole series about hope that somebody had asked me, he said, you know, I don't really know what's normal, like what, what normally happens in families, like, if one of your children was having surgery and they were a good ways away, would you actually, well, like, would you go? Would you be with them? And my son lives three-hour drive away. My daughter's five hours away. I said, if I had to walk there, if I had to walk, why, why? Because when you have somebody you love, it is natural. So doesn't it just, doesn't Christmas make total sense? If God loves us, wouldn't God show up? This is what the story of Christmas is all about. It cuts right to the core of what we need. We want presence, not gifts, presence for God to be with us. God wants us. When we have somebody we love, we want to be there, and God is the same thing. He doesn't want a distance in our lives. Uh, a couple months ago, I was driving through my neighborhood, and of all things, I couldn't believe it, right here in Northern Virginia, I saw a bald eagle just just soaring. I, I was like, what in the world? In my neighborhood, a bald eagle just soaring so majestically through the sky. It was so cool. I would love to fly, right? A couple years ago, I had the great opportunity to go to Alaska, and I had all these high hopes of seeing fantastic wildlife. You know what I'm saying? You know, bear and just everything. I didn't see any wildlife. Like, I see more wildlife in my backyard. After all the money I spent to go to Alaska, saw nothing. I, I think we saw a squirrel run across the road one time, you know, and we got so excited about that because it was the only thing we ever saw. But I tell you one thing that we did see, we saw whales. I mean, we saw so many whales, I got tired of seeing whales. We're out in this little boat, you know, 30-foot boat, and you got the guide who's got the PhD and everything, and this is all he does every summer. It's all he does. He's out there tour after tour after tour seeing, and he's talking to us, and we're seeing the whales, and they're coming up, and they're feeding over and over again. And all of a sudden, I'm talking to him, and this massive whale breaches, like jumps out 25 yards from the boat. Boom! Water everywhere. We're getting splashed. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I looked at him and says, that happens all the time. He says, I've never seen that happen before. But I was thinking to myself, Man, that whale is bigger than this boat, and it's huge, and it's powerful, it's big, and it's bad. I think, man, I want to be big and bad. I want to fly. I've never wanted to be an eagle, and I've never wanted to be a whale. I don't want to live in a nest. It's really un- got to be uncomfortable, right? 
I don't want to live out in the ocean. It's got to be uncomfortable. I don't want to leave the comforts of my home. I don't want to do that. Jesus Christ left the comforts of glory, left the comforts of heaven. Why? What, was he comp- what compelled him to do this, to be born in a manger? I know we try to make the manger and Mary and Joseph there, and it's idyllic, and there's this light, and it's shining down, and it's all glorious. You know what? We just need to be realistic for a second. It wasn't that way, right? There was not a hotel room for them. I mean, which lady here wants to stand up and say, I want to be born in a barn? That's, I mean, I want to give birth in a barn. You know, that's, that's what I would... Nobody. That's crazy. It's, it was a bad situation. It was a smelly situation. It was not idyllic. It was tough. It was rough. And yet, why would he do this? He comes down. He does this. He's compelled. He's compelled by love for us. It cuts right to the very core of our being. There is a great story uh, that is told, happened a number of years ago. There was a gentleman, and his parents' house caught on fire. And he loved his parents, and so he ran in to save them, tried to save them, was unable to save them. They actually perished in the fire, and in the process, his face was severely disfigured, severely disfigured. And because of that, because he, was so, he mourned his parents so much, and because of his own disfigurement, he locked himself in, in his room, and he wouldn't come out. And his wife would pound on the door, let me in, it's okay, let me in. He's like, no, would not let anybody in. She went to a plastic surgeon. The plastic surgeon, look, he said, I think I can help. I think I can help. But he refused all help. Finally, she went back to the plastic surgeon again. He says, look, he's refusing, he's refusing help. He says, look, I can really help him. But, you know, if he's refusing, what is it? Why do you keep coming back to me? What is it that you want me to do? And here's what she said. She said, I want you to disfigure my face. I want you to disfigure my face so that he will let me back into his world. Everybody, that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. The psalm says he has stooped down to make us great. He has entered into our suffering and our pain. He's left comfort. He's left glory. He's left it all behind. It is the Christmas story. It is what you would naturally do for anybody you love. You know, if we love our kids, we've got a three-year-old kid and the kid's crying over here, which one of us would stand back and say, let him cry? We wouldn't do that. We'd want to run to them and hold them. It's natural. It's human. And God is the exact same way. It cuts to the exact core of who we are as people. Well, we've been in this series about hope. And the thing I want you to know, there's something I want you to know tonight, and there's something I would like you to think about doing. And the thing to know is, is that Christmas cuts to the core of who we are, that God loves you, and that is why he came down to be with us, no matter what the cost was to him. And the cost was really great. That's what we should know. And here's the thing that we should do. We need to be people of hope. Hope is like really, really important. The Bible says when we don't have hope, our heart gets sick. And we actually know this for a fact. When people are hopeless, people actually physically die because they lack hope. So hope is super important. And hope is something, something with everything we have in this world. It is, it is a very limited commodity in this world right now. There's a lot of hopelessness. A lot of hopelessness. You know what? By all medical standards, our length of life should be going up. You know what? Recently, it's actually going down. You know why? Suicide and drug overdose. Why? Because there's tremendous amount of hopelessness. Hope is very important. 
And when we don't have hope, our heart grows sick. So practically speaking, everybody, here's what we're after tonight. How can we increase our hope? This is what we've been talking about for the past four weeks. Are there practical things that all of us can do to increase our hope? So I've saved the best to last. I've saved the best to tonight. Dr. Shane Lopez was the world's leading researcher on hope. And he says, here's the thing more than anything else that we can do to increase our hope so that we could live a better life, we can live a more fulfilled life, and everyone around us can have the same thing. Here's the number one thing we can do. Surround yourself with people of hope. Surround yourself with people of hope. And that brings us to Luke chapter 2, which we read tonight. What do we see? We see these shepherds who are social outcasts. They did not live an idyllic life. Like They were the outcasts of the world. Nobody looked up to shepherds. They weren't even allowed to participate in worship. Like, keep them out. They're unclean. They're wrong. They're bad. Whatever. They were looked way down upon. And God comes to the lowest of the low, and he makes the announcement about the Savior of the world being born so that we would know, no matter how low you might feel, you can't go lower than that, that God will reach down to you because he loves you, and he's for you. He's with you, no matter how low you might feel. And he comes to the shepherds, the social outcasts of the world. And the angels say, the Savior's been born. Like, oh my gosh, we've all been waiting for the Savior. Like all of Israel, when this announcement was made 2000, everybody's waiting for the Savior. Like, when is the Messiah going to show up? And so here's the announcement. Oh, this is what we've been waiting for. And you came to us, the social outcast, to tell us? You came to the lowest of the low to tell us that? And it just fills them with hope. They're like, I can't believe this. And they're so excited. They're so charged up. What do they do? Well, the angel says, there's this couple right down the road in Bethlehem. And Mary has just given birth to the Savior of the world. So like, let's go. The angels leave. Let's go. So, they run. so here they are, so filled up with hope. And they come to this couple. Now, again, let's not be too idyllic about what Mary and Joseph are going through. Mary and Joseph are suffering public humiliation and personal rejection because you have an unwed teenage mother. Things aren't well. There's no place in the end for them. They're on the side of a road. It's not a barn. It's not red with white, you know, striping on the right. It's not, it's not that. It's like a little cutout in a, in, a, in a rock wall right along the side of the road. Everybody's just passing by. It's very busy. Why? Because everybody's there to pay their taxes. Woo, pay, let's pay our taxes. Let's get excited about that. It's tax time. So the streets are filled with people. Streets are filled with people. I can't imagine given birth in a situation like that. But this is, this, is, this is what it is. So they're a hope-challenged couple living in a hope-challenged world, but here comes these social outcasts who have found renewed hope because God has reached out to them, and they come and they just pour that hope into them. They pour hope into Mary and Joseph. And we're told in Luke 2 that Mary treasures that in her heart. Remember what I said a second ago? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. When we don't have hope, our hearts get sick. Mary treasures that in her heart. She is finding hope because God has sent a group of hope-filled people to be with them. The best thing you can do for 2019 to be a hope-filled person, and hope is really important, is to surround yourself with people of hope. Now, our prayer team, our prayer team has been praying about this for the whole month. We've just been praying, God, increase hope. Increase hope in everybody's life. Increase hope. And you could pray with them. You could pray for 2019. You know, Lord, send people of hope around me. But you could also do some practical things. There are decisions that all of us can make in our lives, better decisions to be around people 
who are maybe a little more hopeful or make decisions about how we spend our time and our energy. In our world, right, personally and professionally, does everything we do actually bring the hope that we, does it bring the fulfillment that we desire? And so we have to think critically about this as we enter into 2019. How am I spending my time? Who am I spending my time with? God, would you send people of hope around me? Hope is really important. Pray, plan, work with God on that. Our theme verse for this has been Romans 15, 13. This is what it says. May the God of hope, he is the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The key is right in the middle, as you trust in him. Trust in him. Trust in him as what? Trust in him as your savior. So both Mary and Joseph are told that he's the Savior. He's the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. He's come to save us up from our sins. And right there we have a problem. Nobody likes to be called a sinner. Nobody wants to be reminded of their sin. We're like, oh, man. Because, you know, we always feel what, what it's such a loaded term because oh, you, you're self-righteous. You're calling a sinner. Well, all of us have had bad experience with that. So right there, immediately we're kind of turned off. I want to try to, if I can from what the story of the Bible tells us about what sin is, make it a little more practical, like C.S. Lewis says. What exactly is sin? Sin is anything that separates us from God. Now, you might say, well, what is that that separates from God? Okay, let's make it even more practical. It's whatever separates you from the people around you. Whatever separates you from your family or your friends or your coworkers, there you go. That's what sin is. The Bible says that God is love, and 1 Corinthians tells us exactly what love is. It gives us 15 definitions. It's like reading a dictionary. 15 definitions of exactly what love is, okay? So here's what sin is. Love is patient. So am I a sinner? Am I a sinner? Well, I'm a sinner, when I am impatient, because every time I'm impatient with my family, there's a separation. Like, oh boy, check, check the box. Now I know I should stop being impatient. I have so many stories I could tell you that my mind is blowing right now, so I can't even give you all the stories of where I've been impatient. They're just too numerous to, to recount to you. When I'm impatient, then it goes on and says, love is kind. I know I should be kind. I know I should watch my words. I know I should watch my tone. Anybody in the room know what I'm talking about? Watch our tone. Our tone. The tone. I said, there's nothing wrong with the way I said that. Yes, there is. And every time the tone is wrong, every time there's unkindness, every time there's impatience, there's this separation that develops. That, my friends, is what the Bible calls sin. It's really practical. It's not just like mystical out there. Ooh, sin. Oh, no. Very practical. It's when I'm impatient. It's when I'm unkind. It says I shouldn't envy. Doggone it. I hate to admit it to you all, but sometimes I'm envious. It says that I shouldn't hold a grudge against people. It says that I should always think the best about others. Oh, my gosh. I don't know how you all are doing with that one, but it troubles me sometimes. Do you know what I'm saying? And all of a sudden, when I go through the 15 definitions in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, I realize, you know what? I can try really, really hard. I'm not going to be able to do it all the time. I'm going to fall short. I'm going to fall short. Some of you are like really disciplined, and you're going you're, you're gonna to do great. You're gonna, you're all, you're, you won't get all the way there. Can we be honest for a second? 
but I fall way short. You know, I think Billy Graham is always, you know, what he would say, has the best way of explaining this. He said, there's always going to be a gap between us and God. And when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he took a hold of our hand and took a hold of the hand of the Father, and he bridged that gap no matter how wide it might be. Now, listen, everybody. We all know that we don't measure up. We're going to do a series in January. I'm very excited about it. It's called I'm Out to Change My World. The book of Romans actually has changed so many lives and has actually shaped history. You might say, you know what the problem is with you preachers? You make these grandiose statements. Actually, this is, in this case... Not always, but in this case, it is actually true. Historically, the book of Romans has shaped our history. It's absolutely fantastic and fascinating. And here's what it says in it. It says, okay, okay. People will say, but I don't, you know, believe in God's standards or I don't even know God's standards. How can God hold me to his standards when I didn't even know it? And you know what Romans says? Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Let's remove God's standards. Let's just judge you on your own standards on your own. Can you live up to your own standards? You know what? When somebody gossips about me, it bothers me. I don't know about you. Does it bother you? Does it bother you when somebody gossips about you? Anybody? Anybody in the room? I don't like it when people gossip. Anybody here? All right. There's a couple of you tonight. That's excellent. I don't like it. And so I say, how dare you gossip about me? That's bad. You're a bad person gossiping about me. Do you think I don't gossip 100% of the time? Do you think there's ever a time in my life that I do maybe just a smidge, just a little bit gossip about somebody? I'm afraid it's true. I do. I don't like it when people deceive me. You might call it a white lie or whatever, something like, you know, Krista says, did you eat that last cookie? I didn't eat that last cookie. And I say to people, I don't like it when you don't tell me 100% of the truth, but then there's times. There's time. I hate to admit it to you. There's times. I don't even, forget God's standards. I can't even meet my own standards. There's a gap. There's Jesus. So here's hope. Here's what it says. Here's the key to hope. Will you trust God? Will you trust God to make up that gap or will you just keep trying all by yourself? Will you keep trying to lift this standard to get to that place that you can't get to? Or will you allow Jesus Christ, will you trust in him and say, you know what? You did what I cannot do. You did what I cannot do. Here's what we know that happens from the Bible and from church history. When you go from that head knowledge to saying, I confess you, Jesus Christ is my Savior. You did what I can't do, what I never will be able to do. I can't be moral enough. I can't be disciplined enough. I can't be good enough. I can't do my own standard. I can't do your standard. When you confess that, it goes from head knowledge to heart knowledge. All of a sudden, it goes from something I hear about to something I experience. It's like being the told, you know, somebody says, you know, when, when you're hurting, it's so great when somebody gives you the warmth of their embrace, when somebody tells you that. It's the difference between that and actually feeling the warmth of somebody's embrace. It's hearing about somebody getting kissed under the mistletoe and actually being kissed under the mistletoe. How about that one? It's a big difference. We're told that when the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, that when he confessed Christ as Savior, that his eyes opened. It was very personal. He experienced it. We're told that people all over the New Testament in the writing, when they confessed Christ as Savior, that all of a sudden they had joy, they had hope. Martin Luther, the great reformer, we're told this, that when he confessed Christ as his Savior, that he couldn't, that he broke through. 
Would you like to have a breakthrough tonight? We're told that he broke through. And John Wesley, the great revivalist, we're told that when he finally stopped trying to be so good and so moral and so pure, and he confessed, Christ, I'm trusting in you as my Savior, he said his heart was strangely warmed. It's the difference between head knowledge and experiencing something. Have you experienced that? Maybe you have a lot of knowledge about Christ, and maybe you have very limited knowledge about Christ. Have you ever trusted him as your Savior to make up that gap that you and I know will always, always, always? I want to encourage you to do that tonight and to allow it go from being something you hear about, something that's knowledge, to something you experience. I'm going to pray in just a moment to end, and I want to encourage you in the quietness of your seat right there to wrestle with that to wrestle with that. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Will you pray with me? Jesus, we want to thank you for what this night represents. Every single one of us in this room, at the core of our very being, we want to be loved. And those we love, we want to reach out to. And so tonight we celebrate the fact that because of your love, you were compelled to reach out to us and to come to this earth and to wrap your arms around us. And tonight for those who are trusting you as the Lord and Savior of their life, Jesus Christ, would you take it from a head knowledge to an experience? May our hearts become strangely warm by the power of the Spirit that enters into our life and now it becomes very, very personal. Now hope takes on a total new dimension as we trust, trust in you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, everyone, we want to uh, end with Silent Night. We have given you some candles. My family's going to join me on stage and a couple singers. I'd like you to locate that candle, and if you could turn it on, we would like to all stand together and sing that wonderful, beautiful hymn. Actually, I was told that tonight is the 200th anniversary of Silent Night being sung for the first time. So this is a historic night. We all sounded wonderful. I love that song, that line in that song where it says that the calm, the calm, right? Silent night, holy night, all is calm. I hope that God can bring a calm and a tumultuous world into your heart. Well, tonight is a night that we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. This is huge. On a much lower level, everybody, it is the birthday of Grace Community Church today. Today, we are 18 years old this day, Christmas Eve 2000. And it is awesome. Thank you for being here for our birthday celebration. We appreciate it. I know you're here for Jesus too, but <laughs> thank you for being here for our birthday celebration. Um, you know, we stand up here every year for 18 years. My family has stood up here and we have said this. We are honored to be a part of this community. Really, it is absolutely Awesome. I say this all the time, but I say it from the sincerity of my heart. The greatest people I know in this city come to Grace Community Church, and it just is so fantastic. I'll give you a secret, little thing. Um, preacher's kids, like my two right here, preacher's kids, pastor's kids, here's, here's the secret. Most preacher's kids don't like church. Yes. Yes, I know it's crazy. They don't want to go to church. They don't like church. They, they just, everything about it, they want to go. My kids don't feel that way. My kids feel like this church is their family. They're thrilled to be here. And that, at large in part, is because of all of you, because you have just been so awesome with them. So I want to thank you 
all of you out here in the seats who have made this such an awesome experience for us, for my family and kids, and we are honored. We love you. We appreciate you, and we pray that 2019 would be the greatest year ever for you, and God would pack your hearts with hope like never before, and things would just be absolutely awesome. So God bless you. Merry Christmas and a happy new year. Bye-bye.